Hello, welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Glad to see all of you here, as well as those over our campuses in Appleton, Stevens Point, and those who watch us all over the world on the, the web. The web. Anyway, pray with me, will you? Father, we're so thankful for your kindness and your grace. You love us, and we thank you that uh, you want us to continue to grow in the grace that we've received. And we do this by listening to your word and growing from your word. We pray that you would unlock the mysteries of your truth to us, speak to us, speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, come and make these truths real to all of us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. <clears throat> I'm on the backside of a cold, so it sounds a little weirder than normal. That's why. We are in uh, 1 Timothy, as we are going through the Bible, verse by verse. And uh, we've been doing this in order, the order that the books have been actually written. We are now at the end of Paul's life. Coming up, he's in Rome under... Arrest. Eventually he dies there in Rome. And while he's there, he writes these last bunch of letters out. We are now looking at these pastoral letters. Two of them to Timothy. And then one to Titus. Another preacher there. So anyway, we're at the end of 1 Timothy. Chapter 6, verse 11. He has just been warning them about um, you know, all the different things that can cause people to go astray. He just started talking about money people who are not, never content and always wanting more. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And they wind themselves, find themselves in all kinds of trouble, he said. And that's where that verse comes in where he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So we pick it up in verse 11. I said, but you, man of God, talking to young Timothy, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And the real key here is the word pursue. You got to chase after these things. Uh, we'll see this more in his second letter, but he starts really talking in terms of intentionality with young Timothy here. You need to get to these places. You need to do these things on purpose. You got to focus on it and work at it. And that's what he's talking about, pursuing these good traits. He said, fight the good fight of faith. Most of us just fight. <laughs> Bible says fight right there. Yeah, yeah, good fight of faith. And take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, then his next sentence here is one of these rambling sentences. Sometimes he writes and he goes on and on and on and on. It starts in verse 13 and ends at the end of verse 16. And uh, if you break it down real simply... Uh, he says, in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus, I charge you to keep this command. That's what he says in the sentence. But then you add all the other words around it. <clears throat> now what command? So he basically says, I charge you, in sight of God and of Christ, to keep this command. What command? Well, the command to fight the good fight and to uh, uh, pursue eternal life. So, but now let's read what he actually wrote, <laughs> a little longer. He says, in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made a good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. What? 
That's why when I got to the end of it, you think, what did you just say? I mean, he says so many different things. But that's when you take out all the add-ons and you just read, in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus, I charge you to keep this command. But then he takes all this other stuff. He's just getting all this theology, these deep thoughts and reflections about God and of Christ. Um, So let's look at it here. In the sight of God, but then he builds on that, who gives life to everything, the source of all that we have, all life comes from God. And of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So he's talking about here about the context of fighting the good fight of faith. Jesus, even knowing what he was facing, did not back down and made the a good confession before Pontius Pilate when he was being charged, before, before being crucified. He says, I charge you to keep this command. And not just to keep it, but to keep it without spot or blame. No, let's really keep it uh, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. We need to work at these things. Uh, appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time which now we start, we've been seeing a little bit more of these kind of phrases introduced. I think by this time, I think Paul and some of them got a real sense that this is going to be a while. When Jesus first told his disciples, I, I'll, I'm, I'll be right back. They thought he's coming like right back. You know, like he's going to get some milk, come back, you know, run to 7-Eleven, come back. <clears throat> and, uh, but, you know, months. And in fact, initially, you remember, they all sold everything they had. And we often talk about that being a sign of willing to let go of worldly things. And it's true. I mean, it is a good example and stuff. But it's also in the context they really thought, man, by the end of the year, everything's going to be gone anyway, you know. So <clears throat> seriously, if you knew beyond a shadow, if you had in your heart and heart of minds that Jesus is going to come back by December 23rd, just to grab a number, why would you do anything? <laughs> why would you keep anything? Sell what you got? I wouldn't even go to work, <laughs> right? So there's a little bit of that going on in the early church until it started dawning on them, you know, a year goes by, five years goes by, 10 years goes by, 25 years goes by, 40 years go by. I don't think this is happening as quick as we think, all right? So, and that's when Paul, because they had no idea. Jesus told them specifically, nobody's going to know. Well, then Paul says, at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, because this is taking a lot longer than any of us think. I don't think in their wildest imagination they would think we would be standing here 2,000 years later still proclaiming the good news, of, good news of Christ. Does that mean he's not coming? Oh, he's coming. This will all come to an end someday. When? I don't know. It's hard to imagine it going much longer, to be honest. I think the world has just gone insane. But <clears throat> we don't know. We don't know. So he throws that in there which God will bring about in his own time. Then he's going to talk about God. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. It would have been great to just listen to Paul pray. I wish it, the adjectives he would use. You know, I kind of go, oh, thank you, God. You're cool. Amen. You know, but, but not, not Paul. I mean, because, you know, well, I've limited some of us more limited vocabularies. He just, da, da, da. The king of kings, immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and glory forever. Man, there's people who pray like that, by the way. They're great. I love getting on those kind of people. They're just prayers. And I just listen to them. wow. They finally get done. I go, amen. You know, I mean, they really, it's great. I'm not nearly as eloquent with the prayer thing. I don't know. It is what it is, but some people can just nail it. Uh, some people, 
overdo it. <laughs> Do you remember? I... Oh my gosh. So Ike Lewis, Joe and I, you know, we're 300 years old together. And uh, so back Ike, and uh, when he would pray for the food, he wouldn't shut up. It was hilarious. Lord, bless the hands that made this food. We thank you for God. We ask you to bless the peas. Oh, Lord, and the potatoes that grew in the ground and you gave new life. And those farmers who planted those potatoes into the ground and got the corn that grew on those stalks. Lord, we give you thanks for the corn. It's like, shut up. I want to eat. He was hilarious, man. We'd, ra- we'd razzle about it. He'd still do it. He didn't care. But boy, could pray, man. I just like, thank you, God, for the food. Amen. All right, what am I talking about? Nothing. Uh, so, verse 17 now. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Now, why would rich people have a tendency <coughs> to be arrogant? This actually happens to a lot of, uh, sometimes you'll, because we're Green Bay, Wisconsin, football town, and Sometimes you listen to these young football players. Some of them get really arrogant in their thinking, you know. And same like Hollywood celebrities and stuff. They talk about stuff they don't know anything about. They're just making idiots of themselves. But uh, uh, the, the problem here is the power of money, it is very, very uh, powerful on your psyche. Can you imagine, because you know, some of you are about 18, but those of us older... <laughs> Can you remember if you were, when you were 18 years old that you had millions and millions and millions of dollars and you could do anything you wanted to do? Well, what happens is it hits your psyche into a sense that you think, well, everything I think must be right. Because if, if everything I think wasn't right, how would I have all the success? They don't get it. You have all the success because you can do one thing right. <laughs> You might be a moron beyond that, but they can't figure that out. So there's something about people who have money, especially at young ages, that they tend to, you know, arrested development kind of thing, where because they're so successful and have so much money, they just think, man, because I thought all kinds of stupid stuff when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. I still think some stupid things, you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> but if I had all this money and all this success, I would tend to think that everything I'm thinking is right, right? You can't tell me. I got millions of dollars. Right? And that's why you tend to see young athletes and movie stars and stuff like that open their mouths and reveal the incredible stupidity that is in their brains. And they don't get it because they can't imagine they can't be right because I'm successful. And I wouldn't be successful if everything, they just don't get it. It's because you can do one thing well, whatever. So, but that is the power of money. It gives you a sense and really of success in general. There are successful business people, which is what he's talking about here in the church, Sometimes they, they, they're hard to, they don't listen to anybody, and every opinion they have is absolutely right, and they can't imagine why you can't see it. Well, slow down, Pocahontas, okay? I mean, just because you're successful in what you do, you know, because you can sell widgets, and you make great widgets, and the world loves these widgets, and you're, doesn't mean you know jack about running the church, understand? Or this, that, or the other. So what he's trying to tell, you know, warn these people who are very successful, don't, don't get arrogant, the reason you're so successful is, uh, you know, you, act, you do something really well. It doesn't mean that everything you think is right. 
And it's hard. It's hard to separate the two for these people. It's easy for us to criticize them, but you have no idea what that could be like to have that kind of power in your, in your hand. So don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Now, this is where you can really use the analogy of sports stars. I don't know if you've ever seen these documentaries where these people have huge amounts of money and then you just peel through it overnight and they're just done with it. Uh, you know, boy, if anybody understands the power of money disappearing, it's some of these people. Um, they, they have these documentaries every once in a while, people who win lotteries. They're fascinating to watch these things. They'll win millions, of, tens of millions of dollars and in a short amount of time, they're back to where they were. Completely broke. A lot of people think, man, if I just had, wouldn't you think, man, if I just had millions of dollars, I could do anything. And then all of a sudden, pfft, it's all gone. And, uh, and it's very, I, I, actually, I, let, let me give you a story. Because that's what I do, I ramble. But uh, uh, early on, when I was first doing uh, this laugh your way thing. I was also, the first time I was pastoring our, our campus over in Stevens Point. And, you know, the two, you know, it's a little bit of a juggling game. I've been doing it for 10 years. I kind of got it down. But uh, in the beginning, it was kind of a struggle and, uh, you know, trying to figure out, well, how much, and I thought, well, you know, I, I need to stop doing this marriage stuff, quit talking about marriage, and just focus all my time on the church. That would make a lot of sense, right? And people say, well, how do you know that God wanted you to do one or the other? I always tell people, I don't tend to hear voices and stuff. You know, I'm not that spiritual. Uh, the way God leads me is he closes every window and door in the house, lights the house on fire, and opens one door. That's how I, that's how I know where to go. That, seriously, that's always, it's always been that way for me. It's like, you know, God looks at me and says, this is a really stupid man, all right? We got to make this so clear that even a moron can get this. It's how godly, I don't know about y'all. See, y'all started smarter than me. I'm not that smart, so I, I gotta have it really clear. So I'm thinking, and I tell my guy, guys, we need to stop doing this laugh your way thing because you know, we gotta focus on the church. Okay, great, blah, blah, blah. So I get this call from this very wealthy man, multi-gazillionaire, one gazillionaire, it's a big word, but very well-heeled. <laughs> He didn't worry about their rent this month. Let me put it that way. All right. So he calls me and says, I hear you're really helping marriages. And I'm thinking, well, I was. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah. And he says, well, can I meet with you? And uh, so he flies in with his entourage. And we're sitting in this meeting and we're talking and about this and that and the importance of saving marriages in America and stuff like that. So in a nutshell, just to simplify it for you, he basically says, if I give you $4 million, Will you keep trying to help marriages? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? I mean, it's crazy. And then, you know, a, a, a real short time later, I, I met, uh, got a call from this guy in uh, another part of the country. He flies him in, also very well-heeled man. He was more well-heeled than the first guy. And uh, we had lunch together. And then we got lunch, I'm getting ready. I said, well, I got to leave and go on the plane. So he says, great. And, he, and as I'm getting, he says, look, I want to give you a million dollars to help you do what you're doing. Okay. I'll never forget. I didn't even have time to call my wife because I had to get on the plane. So I had to wait until I got to Minneapolis. We're changing over. And I, and I quick, you know, called my wife when I got on the ground. And she said, what did he want? I said, he wants to give us a million dollars. She goes, oh, why would he say that? 
because she knows what a moron I am, right? Why, why, how could this be? I said, I don't know. So at this point, I'm thinking, I, I probably should do this. I, you know what I'm saying? I just maybe, because he's a little thick. Let's make it really clear. But all that to, to talk about, you would think that if you had all this money, anything would be possible to you, okay? So I'm starting off. I am now in a position that most people have dreamt all their life. Man, if I had that kind of money, everything I would do would work. I could change the world, right? So then I launch out into this thing, and everything I touch fails. Every single idea I have is a flop. Everything is going wrong, and we're burning through money like drunken monkeys. I mean, at a Packer party. I mean, it's like, wow! And you, I, it was the most amount of stress I ever had in my life. I generally have no stress. During those early years, I was stressed out of my mind. And I remember going to this uh, gathering with uh, a bunch of national speakers and stuff, Ken Davis. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's a comedian, a hilarious guy. So he's having this class about how to succeed in, in having your own speaking ministry. And people are talking to me, yeah, I got this great idea, but I don't have any money. And you know, everybody's complaining what their problem is. And it comes to me, what's your problem? I said, I got millions of dollars. And I don't know what to do. And of course, everybody goes, we hate you. You know, I said, it was crazy. I was stressed out. I said, seriously, guys, you have no idea. You think everything you think would work if you just had the opportunity. I'm handed to me, and it's proving me I don't know anything. And it is horrifying, horrifying. And these guys are, you know, these guys, how's it going? Really bad. But they stood with us for all those early years, and, you know, by the way, that money's all long gone. Woo! I actually have to earn my money now like a regular human being. But thank God for these guys who helped us at the beginning. They just helped us last long enough so that we could fail and not go under, right? Because most businesses start, and what, 60, 70% of most businesses fail in the first few years. Well, that'd have been us. We'd have been in the first six months. So we had all this backing that God gave us, and it just burned through that stuff. It was horrifying until finally we figured it out. And about the time we figured it out, it was all gone. <laughs> now I'm thinking, Lord, why don't they call now? Where's the money now? You know, but anyway. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Man, you got that right? Woo! Right out the door. Just like these lottery winners get all this money. Woo! Right out the door. Everything they thought they could do, they couldn't do. Uh, it can be quite the revealer. You have no idea. But instead of that, don't put your hope in wealth. You need to put your hope in God, there it is, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now command them who, these rich people, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You know, you, you hear a lot of this in the Bible. I don't think it really hits us the way it hit them. They, we almost see no connection between this life and the next life, if you be really honest. 
Most of us really don't think that much connection at all. We're here, our goal is to pay our bills and not go to jail or whatever, you know. I mean, let's get through, not kill each other. <laughs> uh, but everything's gonna be different once we get there. Very little connection. They never looked at their lives that way. They looked at everything they were doing was part of the next life. We are laying a foundation for what we will enjoy in the next life. And a lot of people don't think of that way at all. Most Christians, I dare say, don't think of that way at all. They live their lives in all kinds of crazy ways, don't pay attention. It's like, it's, it's, well, this doesn't really matter. Once we get to heaven, then everything changes. Well, yeah and no. You remember when Paul was writing to the Corinthians church? They were crazy. First Corinthians, my greatest encouragement book in the Bible because they were crazier than we are. And if God could use them, he could use us, praise the Lord, all right? But these people were nuts and they were uh, taking each other to court and suing each other because the Christians would get mad at each other. You ripped me out. They drag each other to court and Paul said, what are you doing? You guys should be able to settle this stuff on yourself. You should be able to make your own decisions. And he says, don't you realize that we will judge angels someday? And most of us don't, well, well that's when we die. He, no, no, it's, he's, he was like, he's saying, if you can't make decisions in this life about little simple things, how are you going to judge angels in the next life? Which is very odd because we think, well, well, it'll be different when we're in the next life. And they didn't really think so much in those terms. They really looked at this life as this really says we should be living the kind of life that is the launching pad for the life to come, which is really, if you look at the scriptures, what it teaches. But we tend not to think that way. We live our lives with very little connection uh, to what happens in the next. And we really should take much more care to realize that we need to start living in such a way. We are kings and queens, if you will, of the kingdom of God. And we should be living successful lives as Christians. Why? Because we are going to be helping in the life to come. You know, get some wisdom, get smart, think things through. You know, help make decisions, help people make decisions. Don't just come up, people tell you their problems, say, we'll just pray about it. Like you're some kind of a nitwit that doesn't know anything. You should be able to give answers. Why? Because we're going to be able to give answers in the next life. Well, that's different then. No, no, no. You need to start doing that stuff now. Again, it's very different how they thought than the way we think oftentimes. Uh, and in the case of money, he's saying, be generous with your money now so that you can lay a foundation for the next life. And I don't think a lot of us really catch that. I think we think, well, we don't really have to give any money or sacrifice anything here because it's not going to really make any difference when we get over there. And Jesus taught and these guys taught, yes, it will. And I think, quite frankly, a lot of us are just going to be shocked as we can be. And we start to understand laying up treasures in heaven. We need to prepare for the next life in this life. Some of y'all looking at me like I dropped in from Mars. But anyway, <laughs> the Lord has to open your eyes on that one. So, um, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter. Um, I'm not really sure what that means. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. Uh, and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have departed from the faith. So, actually, we'll see this over here again right away. He starts talking about this godless chatter. You think, well, what is he talking about? You know, sitting around just talking about the Packers, you know, uh, just chatting it up. I mean, is that wrong? Is no, no, no. Because to me, that's chattering. <laughs> So no talking. Uh, that's not he's talking. He's talking about uh, chattering that causes people to fall away from their faith. In the next letter to Timothy, he gets a little bit more detail about it, which we'll see. He's talking about false teachers and stuff like that. So he starts talking about you know be careful about what you say and avoid godless chattering and arguing about this, that, and the other. 
at first it kind of doesn't make any sense until you realize the context that he's talking about. That's what he's calling false teachers. Guys who come in and teach false things in the church are just guys who are just flapping their gums. That's what he's talking about. So, so let's find out. Let's go over to 2 Timothy now, the second letter. I'm sorry, did I say the rest? Yeah, grace be with you all, that ends. So then he writes one more letter to Timothy while he's at Rome. Uh, by the way, you know who's with him the whole time? Luke. He's the one who wrote and recorded everything in the book of Acts. And then he just ends him getting in Rome and doesn't say anything much after that. That's why the confusion, well, did he get let loose for a while and stuff like that? Nobody really knows. Luke was there the whole time. Why he didn't record it, I don't know. For some reason, he felt once he gets here, that's enough. So real interesting. Anyway, we'll see. He said, How do you know that? Because he tells us in the next letter. So here we go. The second letter to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Interesting as he throws in the thing as my ancestors did. You know, Paul, you kind of feel the struggle as he talks about, you know, the break or the step from Judaism into Christianity. He was Jewish, and now he's a Christian, and he didn't really see them being contradictory, but it is a different life in the New Testament. Paul is the one who argued that we don't have to live by the Old Testament laws of Moses that were very strict and stuff. Uh, and most of the people who attacked Paul were Jewish people who created the, re the whole reason he's in Rome is because the Jews got on his case because they hated him because he was preaching the gospel to people like you and me who were not Jews and telling us that we didn't have to be circumcised and do all this kind of stuff. But he never would lose the sense of he, that's his peeps, okay? And, uh, and every once in a while, he would, he'd always reflect back on it. So he's, I, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did. Talking about his Jewish uh, upbringing. And he just thank God, he, I constantly remember you when I pray. He says, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere face, faith, face. I'm sure he had a nice face too. <clears throat> but of a sincere faith, uh, which, was first, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Really interesting here. Um, the spiritual heritage that Timothy came from was due to the faithful women in his life. Uh, why he doesn't write of the faith of the grandfather and of his father and now in him uh, is real interesting. I don't know that maybe they weren't believers. Who knows? I don't know. All that Paul points out is, man, your grandma really had faith. It was also in your mom, and that's what got into you. And uh, it's kind of interesting. And all the moms said, Amen. All right. Now, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What gift is that? We don't know. He doesn't say. Um, the point here is not so much getting caught up in whatever gift he got, is that he's telling him to fan the flame. Make it brighter. Now he starts right away at the top of the letter. Be intentional. God has given you certain gifts. 
Use those gifts. Work those gifts. Make it come alive in your life. Just don't sit around and skate on stuff. Make it happen. Um, for, the spirit of, for the spirit God gave, gave us does not make us timid, all right, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So boom, right away he goes into heavy theology here uh, and talks about how all of this stuff that happened was not just happening on the fly. God wasn't making this up as he went along. This whole idea of being saved by grace through faith in Christ was decided before the world began. God knew exactly what was going to happen. So if God knew exactly what was going to happen, then why did he set it up? You know, that's when your head starts spinning in circles trying to figure out all these, you know, time-traveling things. But uh, who knows? All we know is that when God made Adam and Eve, he knew what he was doing. When he put the tree in the garden, he knew what he was doing. He knew all this stuff. And, uh, and yet this whole plan was set from the foundations of the earth, the Bible talks about. So all of us is not new. God's done this all along, and he knew all this stuff. Christ Jesus, who destroyed death. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death, because clearly we all still physically die. But now there's not a spiritual death, a death separated from God from eternity. Death is death because our spirit separates from our body. Uh, but spiritual death is when we're separated for eternity from God. That has been wiped away, and now we have immortality through Christ. All right? Uh, and then he says, end of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. It's a great verse. Memorize that verse. Uh, get that in your head. I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him. He is faithful. He said, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. And the other words, he's telling Timothy, teach what I taught. Live the way I lived. And that's, you can imagine, that's to be able to say that to somebody. You want to be successful? Do what I've done always. Very few of us, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't be comfortable saying that. But Paul was very devout. And he said, man, if you will just live the way I live, do what I did, say what I say, you will succeed. Uh, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Now guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So you hear the intentionality here. I, I laid hands on you. A gift of God came upon you. We'll talk a little bit more about it still. Uh, and then you need to fan that flame and make that burn brightly. You've got to do something intentionally. He says here, guard what was entrusted to you. Don't just skate along. Don't think it doesn't matter what I do. God did something in me and I don't have to worry about it anymore. No, you've got to really guard what God has done in your life. Just because you had an amazing experience with God five years ago, 10 years ago, some of us 45 years ago, literally, um, 
just because, man, oh yeah, I had real power, great encounter with Christ. Well, you can't just skate from then on. You've got to continue to grow in your faith, which I applaud all of you. That's why you're here tonight, learning about the scriptures. Too many people, uh, and represented by the fact that 90% of our congregation doesn't come to these things, <laughs> tend to skate. They're skaters. They're great people. God loves them. We all love them. But these are the people, their lives eventually run into trouble and they don't know how to function and they've never learned faith. They've never really grown. They don't understand the scriptures. They're just asking for trouble. I warn them all the time. I tell you this. I tell them all the time. You want your life to be better a year from today? You need to come to these Bible studies. You need to be intentional about your faith, growing your faith, getting involved, serving the church. These are life-changing things that help you to intentionally grow in your faith. You don't just plant plant a flower and say, you know, lots of luck, you know, works in the wild, but not in our house, okay, uh, my wife's good with that stuff, that flowers see me and they start crying, <laughs> not him, because I'll kill it, I'll kill everything, you know, it's just horrible, but, because uh, I don't do the right things <laughs> with the flowers, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to water that more than once a year, is what, I don't, I didn't understand, so anyway, guard, work at these things. Now he says, you know that everyone in the provinces of Asia has deserted me, including Figulus, whatever his name, and Hermogenes. Now this letter is real interesting. Paul names names in this letter. He doesn't do that in a lot of the other ones. But in this one, he does a couple of times, but this one, he names like four, five, six different people by name. These dirty, rotten turds. I mean, he just, he was, man. Wouldn't you hate to have your name in the Bible forever? As a turd? That'd be awful. Oh, my goodness. So, Asia's deserted me. Well, we don't think about that. And it names these two guys by name. Ow. And I said, they all deserted me. Well, I don't know what he means by all, because clearly Timothy hadn't deserted him. Luke was still with him, and, you know. His, I guess it's inner thing, but he had this group of people. Why they deserve, I don't know. They don't tell us. He doesn't tell us this stuff. There's so many things. It's like, give me more info. But apparently it wasn't necessary. Or they knew about it. You know, that's the other challenge of the letters that we read. Particularly, even like 1 Corinthians, some of these things that he'd tell them, and we go, what are you talking about? They all knew what he was talking about. We don't. You know, it's like uh, if, uh, you know, um, I have conversations with Bob about things, and then later I write him a letter about it, and I refer to things that we talked about in detail. Well, he'd know right away what we were talking about, but you read the letter later, what's he talking about? Oh, so we're a little bit of an inconvenience there. Um, May the Lord show mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. There's a name for your kid. Looking for baby names. <laughs> Onesiphorus. May the Lord have mercy on his house. Why? Because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Uh, bless you. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped, us, helped me in Ephesus. So this is, this is where you want your name in the Bible, right? Now he's down forever. This guy was a nice guy. He helped this help Paul and search for him and found him in Rome and went out of his way to minister. And uh, so in that little section, he, we see the differences between loyalty and disloyalty. All right. We want to be loyal people. Try to be as loyal as you can. 
Uh, I know sometimes, and, and I, I know sometimes things come up in the churches and it blows people away and, and whatever. But there's one thing I've tried to teach over and over again. Get a sense of loyalty uh, to your church, this church. And I would say this to any Christian, all you guys all around the world. Uh, one of the bad things about American Christianity, it's much worse in the South. I thank God I don't live in the Bible Belt. I couldn't handle it. I'd want to kill them all. All right. But they, they, and these guys in the South know what I'm talking about. They, we talk about, I was, just, I was just there, I was just in Oklahoma City last weekend talking about, you know, hundreds at a time. We just go from one church to the next church and jump from here to there and all over the place. That's what they do, you know. No loyalty. And I just think it's a horrible thing. You know, one of the things I love about being up here is you don't see much of it. Uh, we still get it from time to time, little bits of it. But we should be the kind of people that we should just be faithful. Let's do this together. Let's be a family. You know, let's raise our kids and our grandkids here and our great-grandkids here and, and things will change and go up and down. Now, obviously, if I start preaching heresy or something like that, you know, you, that's, that's one thing. But, you know, people get mad because we changed a program. And they just leave. Really? Other people leave because someone else has a nicer program, which is what happens in the South. That's the competition thing. You have a great, but it's an adulterous heart. See, that's what I always call, that's an adulterous heart. Jesus talks, the Bible talks about people who come from an adulterous generation. Not talking about people who literally go around committing adultery, although I'm sure that would qualify. But everybody wasn't around committing adultery. What it was, these are people who just, when you find something better, you take it. That's what adultery is, right? You find someone who's nicer to you than the creepy husband that you got who won't talk to you, you know? Uh, you find someone who's a lot more attentive. You find a lady who's prettier. There's always somebody prettier, always somebody prettier. I deal with it, girls. It is what it is. Always, there's always someone with nicer hair, nicer butt, bigger boobs, something, somewhere. It, it is what it is. An unfaithful man, all you can find someone who's better, and then they run off with it. In fact, one of the main reasons that young men today are, are not wanting to get married, I've talked to these little rats, these millennials, God bless them. Their main fear is, well, what if I can find someone better? See, they're dating your daughter, your granddaughter, and they're dating for three, four, five years, and they won't commit. Why? Because... Do you like her? Yeah, well, yeah, we love each other and stuff. And in private, they're like, well, you know, how, how do you know this is the one? There might be somebody better. It's just, it's just terrible, I think. It's an adulterous heart. They, they live this way before they get married. They live this way after they get married. They keep living in this way. Be faithful. Be faithful. Life changes. Okay, and the same with your church. You know, and even physically life changes. I mean, when you get married, you know, you got that boy, and he's got that big muscular chest up here, and a few years later, it's way down here, you know, just... <laughs> It's a gravity thing. We won't even talk about the ladies' gravity problems, okay? So, I mean, there's all kinds of gravity problems going on. Everything changes, you know? You can marry the most incredible person today, and in 20 years, it's a whole other story. It is what it is. What, what do you do? You stay faithful. You stay faithful. You stick with it. This is, this is life, all right? Hallelujah. <laughs> By the way, girls, and I don't know why I'm saying this, because I always get off track. But uh, uh, I know a lot of women get really insecure and stuff like that. But um, most men tend to imprint on the way their wife looks when they first meet them. And even years later, when she doesn't look anything like that, she still does to him. So you don't understand that. You think, oh, I'm this. He doesn't get it. It actually works that way for him. That's why men don't have self-esteem problems. No, it's true. It really is true. We imprint. 
Have you seen these, these cartoons where, you know, a guy, you know, big chubby guy all about, looks in the mirror, and in the mirror he sees this reflection of this real thin guy, you know? We all giggle and stuff because it's true. It's based on truth. That's what men see. Men tend to imprint on how they look at age 18. And from then on, when they see a picture or a mirror that doesn't add up to that, they doubt what they see. Well, I can't, that can't be me because I still look like I did at 18. I got that nice body and stuff like that. We, you know, we're still denying all of this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that's why men don't, because they, women don't do this. They don't lack and think, I, I still look like I did when I was 16. You know, most women don't, not anything like that. Men literally do. Even though they know intellectually, still in their heads, somehow psychologically, they are still the bomb. And that's why most men, even though they look horrid at some age, still think they're pretty hot. Because you can sense what I really look like on the inside, okay? That's absolutely true. And it is true with their wives. When they fall in love with a girl, they marry the girl, that burns into their head, and that's what they think of you even many, 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 many years later. I wish women would hear this more. If they would, they would probably start feeling less insecure about themselves because, oh, I don't look the same. And I, but to him, you do. It is what it is. I look at that little redhead of mine. I get she doesn't look like she did when she's 18, but to me, she still does. In my head, that's, just, it's, that's still the girl, you know? How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? All the men. Yeah, see, the men know what I'm talking about. You girls are like, that can't be true. Yeah, it is true. <laughs> that was a rabbit trail. Where am I now? <laughs> I don't even know where I am. Wait a minute. Uh, okay, chapter two. Man, how did I get there? That was a run. Chapter two, talking to Timothy then, he says, now you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, intentionality. Well, I'm not strong. Then be strong. Well, you can't just tell me. Yeah, you can. Intentionality. Fan the flame. Be intentional. Guard what's in your heart. Be strong. All of these things are intentional steps that he's telling Timothy. And these things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust that to, to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. He knew, uh, he's getting ready to check out. He's going to talk about this toward the end of the letter. He can sense he's about to die. And the Lord's made it clear to him at this point. This, this is it, Jack. You're coming home. And of course, he wants to build into the next generation. And then, and then from Timothy to the next generation. We need to keep this thing going. Why? Because the Lord will come in, in his own time. He doesn't know. And of course, thankfully, faithful men and women have done this for generations, and that's why we're all still here. Okay, so, uh, join with me in suffering. Well, that doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> and it's not. Uh, but it is what it is. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he goes into these great little analogies here. And uh, we'll back up once we go through it. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. And then Paul says to him, reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Okay, so let's do a little bit of reflecting. It's kind of hard to reflect on the fly here, but we'll 
do it nonetheless. So what he's saying, three analogies. One, he's talking about a soldier. A soldier is a successful soldier when he totally com uh, commits to his service and pleases his officers and rises in rank. This happens intentionally. Again, the idea of working at stuff. Be intentional. Work hard at it. No one uh, who competes as an athlete receives the victor's crown unless he plays by the rules. And of course, the imp implication is working hard and training. And, you know, they don't care who comes in last. They don't really care who comes in second. Sports, man. All we care about who wins, right? That's all anybody cares about. So you got to work hard. Athletes who do this, they don't just do it by accident. Uh, you know, every once in a while, you, you read about athletes who kind of did do things by accident because they're such uh, skillful guys, you know, like, like Babe Ruth, you know, was, you know, he comes, <laughs> he go to games half drunk and <laughs> all kinds of stuff and, you know, but he can still hit that ball. Okay, well, that's definitely the exception rather than the rule. Or some of these old Packer players <laughs> in history and you hear what they were doing the night before the game. Oh my gosh, I could even stand up the next day. But they were just kind of natural athletes. That's very much the exception. Uh, that doesn't really work in faith. You've got to be intentional. You want to win at this race, you've got to work at winning. Okay? Athletes who compete for the Olympic gold or whatever don't just go to training, you know, a couple of times a month. Or just Christmas and Easter. <laughs> I'm going for the crown. Oh, yeah, I'm working out. Yeah. It's like somebody told me the other day, what do you, what do, you do for workouts? I said, I, I do sit-ups. I said, really? I said, yeah, I do about 365. Really? Yeah. I sit up in the morning, and then I sit back down at night. That's one. And then I keep doing it all year long, and it's about 365 sit-ups. That's why you don't see me running the bell in, I'll tell you right now. <laughs> I wouldn't even want to drive it. Good Lord. <laughs> I'm serious. Why are we going this long way around? All right, so, uh, and then the hardworking farmer. Why does he, he do well? Because he works hard at it. What is a connection we don't get in America today that you reap what you sow? People think it's not fair. It's not fair that you have more than I got. Why is that? That's not fair. Well, yeah, but he worked harder at it than you did. Well, well that's not fair. You know, it's, it's like you, you go, come up to a farm and everything looks beautiful and this guy's got this great harvest. You come up to another farmer and everything's just all torn apart. Nothing, nothing, just weeds everywhere. And that farmer's just sitting on the ground crying. So what's wrong? So, I got nothing but weeds and rocks. Look at that guy. How come he gets it so good? What, did you remove the rocks? No. Did you plant the ground? No, it's my farm. That's America today, right? Or, you know, government owes me. Everybody owes me. So I'm listening, I don't know. You guys ever listen to Jerry Bader? In the morning? I've been on the show a couple of times. He's a little odd, but he's a nice man. But anyway, uh, I was listening to the show, and they were talking about the problem with retirement for the next generation because they're not saving for anything now. They're not saving for anything. And, uh, and, he says, and Bader said, you know what they're going to do? And I bet you it's true. What they're going to do is they're going to eventually come up with a tax on people's retirements. Because let's say you saved a million dollars. 
well, it's not fair that you save a million dollars. So we're going to tax 20% of your retirement to give it to Bob, who didn't do anything. Shame on you, Bob. Yeah. And you hear, that's absurd. But that's the culture. That's that whole culture of taking from others to give to others. So you work really, really, really hard, and you're going to save all this money, ready for retirement, and the government's going to take chunks of it away to give it to people who didn't, who spent every penny they had on the latest iPhones, which I do, but I have the money to do it. So, you know. <laughs> I mean, on the latest whatever, and they're hot, the TVs and everything else, and they just blow through all their money, and they, they have nothing. Uh, and they don't understand. The reason why these farmers get the big win is they're hardworking farmers. They're the ones who put in the effort. The athletes who win don't do it by accident. They work really hard at it. This is the military service guys work very hard at it. This is the kind of thing that Paul is trying to reflect on young Timothy. You want to succeed at this? You want to be a great pastor? You want to be a faithful minister of Jesus Christ? Put your butt in gear and work at it. Commit yourself to it. Give yourself to faith and grow in your faith. Which, God bless all y'all for doing that. All right, so, now remember Christ Jesus, raised from the dead, descended from David. <laughs> now, not to beat a dead horse, <laughs> but uh, I was just talking on Sunday. Were y'all Sunday? Y'all come to church Sunday? Talking about remembering, right? You got to remind each other and stuff. Isn't it interesting? He just throws in this phrase, remember Christ Jesus. What do you mean remember? Of course I remember. Remember. It's the whole thing. We got to remember. We need to get comfortable being reminded and reminding each other. And as I said on Sunday, so this will be three times now. You got four more to go. All right? We're talking about Sunday morning. Say, I'll pass that some, say something seven times before anybody remembers it the first time. The sad thing is you'll be the only ones who remember it now. The other ones missed out on the third. So... But uh, successful marriages, relationships, are couples who constantly remind each other and are comfortable with it. Always remind, oh, don't forget, I need this, don't forget it. And, but then people get mad. Quit, quit nagging me. That's, that. That's not nagging, you big baby. All right? This is good for you. Don't, don't get angry about being reminded. Just, oh, thanks. Oh, thanks for reminding me. Oh, you're right. You know, suck it up, buttercup. All right? And get comfortable. Constantly reminded. It goes both ways. Men hate being reminded because they call it nagging. And, but even women don't like being reminded. Nobody likes to be reminded. They look at it as an insult. And I'm trying to tell people, it's not an insult. This is healthy. It's a good thing. We need to be reminded. And I talk about how Jesus, at the Last Supper, did all that so that we would constantly do it, so that we would remember him and what he did. And even Paul, in the middle of this letter, not connected to anything, just says, remember Christ Jesus, raised from the dead, descended from David. We just got to keep reminding ourselves, right? Then he says, this is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, the chosen ones. What does that mean? People argue about that all the time. I don't know. <clears throat> elect. <laughs> I, I trust that all of us who believe in Christ are part of the elect, chosen ones. That they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's a trustworthy saying. And he goes into the, one of these uh, little rhymes again. And, uh, you know, I don't know if they did, if these were like things that, little rhymes and stuff that, hap that happened in the church. Remember, he did in the first letter where it talks about, you know, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, preached among nations, believed in the world, taken up into glory. These little sayings, these are faithful sayings. Well, they can't be Old Testament sayings because they weren't talking about Jesus. You know, I think these are little things, rhymes, songs, I don't know. Uh, here's a trustworthy saying, and then he gives this little 
uh, poetic reading. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Isn't that great? So I don't know if it was just a saying or if it was a part of a song or whatever, but very nice. If we die with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. And to remind themselves, if we disown him, he will disown us. So he says, keep reminding. Oh, no, I hate reminding. <laughs> All right, that's four. All right. <laughs> keep reminding God's people of these things. Pastor, I heard this already. I, I want to grow. I, 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 need, I need more meat. I need more meat. <laughs> I want to hear something I've never heard before. My ears are really itchy. It's driving me crazy. I got I to gotta hear something I haven't heard before. You keep saying stuff I already know. Yeah, when you start doing it, we'll move on. All right. <laughs> keep reminding us. Great story. <laughs> There's one I hear the story. This pastor comes to the church and they just bring him on and he preaches the sermon. It was just amazing. The next Sunday he comes and he preached the exact same sermon. People all kind of looked at him and thought, well, that was kind of odd, but you know. Come back the third time, he preaches the exact same sermon. The fourth time for the whole month. Four times, the exact same sermon. The elders got together and said, what are you doing now? You're preaching the same sermon. He said, look, when you do that one, I'll move on to the next. <laughs> All right, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And this is something that is a bit of a challenge, uh, properly handling the word of truth. King James says, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, and what does that mean? It means... You can't just quote one scripture and make a big deal about the one if you know it also goes against other scriptures. Do you see what I'm saying? And if you don't know the Bible very well, you'll have a tendency to do that. You'll take one thing and just go all crazy psycho on it and, uh, and overdo it. And, and, but if you're rightly dividing the word of truth, you go, no, no, no. You can't go that far because now you, you've gone too far and in, in, in this kind of thing. Uh, for example, um, one of the things that I awful, often try to bring out to people is that when people are acting very badly, they need to be confronted. Most people are very peace-natured people, and they don't like to confront. I like it a little bit too much. I, I got, he, pre, he preaches against me in a minute down here, so we'll, we'll get to him, you know, probably next week. But, uh, but uh, you know, people say, well, no, no, what, about, what about love and forgiveness? You can't get in people's faces because you got to say, about love and forgiveness? Well, Yeah. We do have love and forgiveness, but when someone starts really acting bad, what does the Bible say? Jesus says, you give them one strike, two strike, three strikes, you're out. Paul said, you know somebody who claims to be a Christian and living immorally? At some point, you don't even talk, don't even eat a meal with them. Well, well that's not love. What about love and forgiveness? Well, no, that's rightly dividing the word of truth. Of course, we love and forgive people, but at some point, they cross a the line, then these other scriptures kick in. But if you don't know the word of God, you'll just take one end of it. And that's why in a lot of churches, you could be an ax murderer and they wouldn't care. Really, I mean, you do anything. They, and I've even had pastors, you know, because I challenge people, as you all well know, and I get done, pastors all freaked out. Oh, brother, we, you know, we, we don't believe in you know, shame and condemnation. So, well, I'm not trying to shame or con condemn anyone, but they just need to repent. <laughs> that's why I say, you know, the only people who never feel bad about doing things are psychopaths. And I don't think the Bible tells us to create psychopaths. But all they look at is the grace scriptures. Forgive and forgive and forgive. Yeah. But then there's the don't even have anything to do with them. 
Paul at one point said, kick this one guy out and let's pray for him. Let's pray that we turn him over to the devil. Man, when the church is praying for you to get turned over to the devil, this is a bad day for you, all right? Praise the Lord, church is praying for me. Yeah, you might want to think that through a little bit because it wasn't a good prayer. Well, that's not Bible. I'm supposed to love and forget. You, know, you can't just take one thing. But that, that's just one example. There's lots of things like that in the Bible where, well, Pastor, what about this? And then we'll go, well, yeah, but you got to balance it on this. And people, there's people who actually have a hard time comprehending this because all they see is the one truth that is being pointed out in this particular verse. But you can't take it so far because other scriptures say, but there's also this. You've got to learn to rightly divide the word of truth. Kudos again to all of you who come, you're studying, you're learning, you're reading, you're growing in your faith. We keep doing this, and, and at some point, you should be able to do this. You don't have to be a pastor to do this. At some point, you should be really mature enough. You've read the Bible enough. You start to understand, ah, you hear stuff, you can start rightly dividing and balancing things out and knowing how to take balanced approaches to life. People who their only version of Bible reading is, is looking at a promise verse, right? A lot of people have never read the Bible. I'm shocked. Years and years ago, they've never taken one book of the Bible, never read all the way through it at all. They just jump, here's my favorite verse, and I got this verse over here, and they got, you know, they, they put little pretty things and they color parts of their Bible. They don't actually read anything around it, they just like these one verses, and they jump all over the place, la, 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 like a frog, bloop, 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 all over the place, and they think they know that they don't know the Bible, and that's why they tend, tend to be very unbalanced, because they tend to just like the scriptures that they like, right? Um... I got one minute, so I guess I won't go any further. Well, we'll, we'll end there. Now he's going to talk about godless chatter again, and we'll, we'll go on from there. I've been going over lately. I'm trying to behave myself. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word and for your truth. Lord, help us to take truth and grow from the truth. And mostly from what we talked about tonight, help us to just make a determination in our hearts to be intentional. We need to grow in our faith on purpose. You don't become the winner in a race by accident. You don't become the best farmer by accident. All you'll get is weeds. Uh, these things don't happen. You won't advance in life by accident. People who succeed in life, Lord, as Paul is pointing out, do so on purpose. Help us not to be kind of people who just sit around and get upset because we don't succeed like everybody else. It's not luck. It's not you blessing one person and ignoring another person. It's the, these people do it on purpose. Help us to be intentional Christians. People who do this stuff on purpose, who actually work at their faith, not just slide around on our faith. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody said, amen. amen. Bless y'all, all y'all. See you next time. <laughs>